So welcome everyone to the next in our series of fireside chats about class actions. None of us are actually sitting in front of a fireside, I don't think, although the weather probably um, merits that. Uh, and for those of you who, like me, were sceptical about the idea that we could actually run a series of um, discussions about class actions, I think what's clear is the area does keep throwing up uh, yeah, interesting new questions that are very worthy of discussion. And, and so today uh, we've got a few topics that hopefully you'll all find really interesting. We're going to do three things. Firstly, Christine's going to give us a bit of an overview of um, what has been um, some of the submissions that have been made to the parliamentary inquiry into your class actions and litigation funding. It's obviously been a, um, a, a very controversial um, parliamentary inquiry already, uh, and we haven't even had any hearings yet. Uh, and you know, there have been a number of press reports on some of the, 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 the submissions that have been made. Uh, and so Chris is going to give us an overview of some of the themes that have come out of those submissions. Then we're going to hand over to Harry, who's going to talk a little bit about the UK experience of shareholder class actions. And the reason for doing that is that one of the proposals uh, that's being put forward is that, that, that we should get rid of a private right of action um, for breaches of continuous disclosure, which then hands you over to, well, do we end up in a, in a UK-style scenario? So Harry will outline for us you know, the way these kind of actions have been running in the UK. And then finally, I'll touch on one of the other proposals, which is the idea that um, instead of having a private right of action, basically ASIC given, be given a mandate to pursue um, remedy for affected shareholders. And then we'll open it up for some general discussion. So hopefully you'll find the, um, the discussion engaging and I'll, and I'll hand over to you, Christine. Thanks so much, Cameron. So um, that's right. So the submissions were due last week for the parliamentary inquiry on the class actions um, industry, 87 submissions were received and as well as six um, email submissions and the submissions covered the full scope of class action types but um, personally for me the ones I found most interesting were the ones that touched on shareholder class actions, the fastest growing species of class action litigation, um, the most prominent type in, um, in the current market and I think what is particularly interesting as Cameron um, you touched on is it provides a great snapshot of the current debate. Um, it's generated a lot of debate in the public domain, which I think is a great thing to have that level of engagement and dialogue. So I'm going to deal with um, three key propositions that have come through in those submissions. The first is that shareholder class actions are popular. The second is that they're provocative. And the third is that they're currently being tested through um, changes in the substantive disclosure laws. And as Cameron touched upon that, um, you know, potential further changes that might be in the pipeline. So just on the first, um, I think, you know, I know it's a sophisticated audience, um, it, not controversial at all that shareholder class actions are popular. They account for a third of all class actions filed in the last five years. They tend to settle when they survive early interlocutory applications such as carriage motions. Very few have proceeded to trial and only one has proceeded to, um, to a judgment. That was uh, handed down late last year. And the average settlement size is about 50 to 60 million. And interestingly for me, um, one of the uh, submissions actually put that average range um, higher, so closer to $75 million at the upper end. So they're, they're popular. Um, they're also provocative in that they've been uh, the site of some of the most controversial aspects of our jurisprudence. So you can't talk about shareholder class actions without talking about litigation funders. So roughly 80% of all shareholder class actions are supported by litigation funders. And I read um, in one of the submissions that the litigation funders were generating a return on investment that was 17 times more than what investors were obtaining through investing in ASX 200 stock. 
So, you know, if you look at the average settlement size, it's 50 to $75 million. If you can prosecute a claim for, say, 5 to $10 million, um, that's where the economic incentives lie for litigation funders. We could spend, you know, hours talking about litigation funders, and in fact, our colleagues spoke about them last uh, last week, so I'll leave it there. Um, the second um, side of controversy is that it's led to the proliferation of open competing class actions, what we call multiplicity, and that's something that we addressed in our submissions to the Parliamentary Joint Committee. Um, so in our, uh, in the sample that we looked at, when we looked at the, you know, last five years of class action litigation, we identified at least 53 competing class actions that were filed in relation to 21 legal disputes. Now, not all of these were shareholder class actions, but the majority were. So um, it raises pertinent questions regarding the efficiency and effectiveness of the current system. Um, but in, and it's uh, particularly interesting because the class action regime was specifically designed to achieve efficient access to justice. So. Um, I think on both sides of the V, no one's disagreeing that open competing class actions is um, not the best way of going forward in terms of um, you know, redressing any concerns that fugitive claimants might have. The third um, piece of controversy, and I think it's the one that the three of us are all really focused on, is the interaction between substantive disclosure laws and the class action regime. So it's a combination of our class action procedure, the fact that the threshold to commencement is quite low, um, plus the high disclosure standards that are imposed on listed entities. That's created this really unique environment for shareholder class actions to, um, uh, to, to be as popular as it has been. Um, and the reason for the controversy is that our disclosure standards are arguably out of step with the rest of the common law jurisdictions. And that's something that some of the um, submissions to the parliamentary inquiry have um, focused on um, picking up where the ALRC uh, left off with their recommendation that there be a review of the legal and economic impact of our continuous disclosure and misleading deceptive conduct laws. So um, as we all know, those are two core limbs to the disclosure environment that um, corporates currently operate in. And so that's a nice segue to um, the, the last uh, topic that I was gonna touch on, which is that um, shareholder class actions are being tested through changes in um, the substantive law. So um, of course, we are currently now in the, uh, I'm not the middle, but at the start of this six-month experimentation period with the corporation's coronavirus economic response determination number two. It's quite a mouthful, but um, under th that legislation, the standards under 6742 um, have eased temporarily. So during this period, a breach of the civil penalty provision under 6742 occurs only where um, the corporation or the listed entity has disclosable information that they withheld um, with knowledge that it would have a material impact on price or if the corporation withheld that information recklessly or were negligent as to whether it would have a material impact on price. So it modifies the previous objective um, reasonable person expectations tests for materiality. Now that in and of itself has generated a lot of debate, some saying it will aid companies during this period, some saying it won't change things very much because it's left untouched, the misleading deceptive conduct um, uh, provisions. 
um, another saying it's gone too far and it's it's not necessary. So I think here it raises some really interesting questions regarding, um, uh, for me, I'm not going to rehash that debate, but um, for me, the, the questions are whether or not the temporary measures are going to be permanent. Um, what are we actually going to see from this um, experimentation? Will we actually see a reduced incidence of opportunistic class actions? I think that's something um, that a lot of people have questioned. And then taking it one step further, as Cameron's alluded to, um, there were submissions from um, business groups regarding, you know, that they really question whether there should be a private right of action for continuous disclosure breaches, which is what we currently have, or whether we should be moving to a model that's um, similar to what uh, the UK has. So I guess um, I might, uh, if, if, I might, if I may, uh, throw it to Harry, because I think that's uh, a really interesting um, comparison jurisdiction for us to um, keep an eye on. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Christine. And and what's uh, I think probably helpful for for the audience is for me to I guess give a little bit of background as to what the uh, regime looks like in the UK, and then perhaps use that as the launch pad to speculate as to what the Australian position might look like in the future. So the continuous disclosure uh, cause of action and the misleading and deceptive conduct cause of action have their equivalents in the UK under something called Section 90A of the Financial Services and Markets Act. And that makes uh, uh, a cause of action available to investors for uh, untrue or misleading statements by issuers in their publications or the omission of required information, required essentially being a standard that's set by the regulatory requirements that issuers are under. So those give rise to a, a cause of action for shareholders. But in truth, compared to the Australian market, we've seen very few shareholder class actions that have actually been brought. And there are essentially uh, three reasons why that might be. The, the first is procedural. The second relates to a hurdle that the cause of action has in respect of reliance. And the third relates to the fault standard. So let me take each of those in turn and just give a little bit of background about each of them. So from a procedural perspective, in the UK, there is no opt-out regime like there is in Australia. Each claimant has to opt in, which means that the instigators of class actions need to identify and then persuade sufficient numbers of shareholders to file a claim in order to make the claim economically viable. So a book build needs to be undertaken, and that is obviously a hurdle which funders and claimant law firms have to overcome right at the outset. The second issue relates to causation, and in the UK, there is no equivalent to the Myler decision from late last year, which made the establishing causation between the breach uh, and the loss that investors may have suffered, that bit easier to overcome. Uh, it's not to say that the same arguments that supported a market-based causation uh, uh, argument work in an Australian context won't be run in the UK, but there are some specific words in the statute, in the statutory cause of action which suggests that that's much less likely to be successful 
because there are express requirements of reliance that need to be shown uh, to establish that necessary linkage. The third, and what's really uh, relevant to the debate going on in Australia now, relates to the fault standard. And that has been set at a much higher level than has been the case in Australia. So for untrue and misleading statements, it needs to be established that the board of directors knew or were reckless as to the fact of an untrue or misleading statement being contained in the publication. And in respect of omissions, they need to go even further and establish dishonesty on the part of one of the board. That obviously sets the benchmark uh, very high. Um, and as a trend has led to the majority of cases which have been threatened or indeed brought to focus on really quite egregious conduct on the part of the issuer, such as fraud or um, other compliance breaches that have essentially been admitted by the issuer. And then the battleground becomes, well, did the board know um, or did they turn a blind eye? to the existence of that kind of conduct. And that of course presents a, a contrast to what we see typically or on many occasions in Australia, where there will be a focus on some pretty judgmental calls around updates to earnings guidance or other decisions of the board, which are much more finely balanced and less egregious. What's uh, interesting is where you see them bringing in in Australia a negligence cause of action. Um, and I think that will be uh, remaining in a contrast with the position in the UK. And I think what people have um, criticised the UK position for some time about is that it prevents the cause of action being available where there is simply negligent conduct on the part of the board. But what that tends to do is ignore the fact that the class action regime doesn't exist in isolation. There is also alongside it a, a regulatory enforcement approach where the issuer can be on the end of a regulatory fine for negligently failing to meet its disclosure obligations. And I think that's an interesting area when you come to the debate that is being talked about in Australia about whether the private right of action ought to be removed and APIC be left to conduct the relevant uh, enforcement against any issuers who breach. Yeah, thanks, Harry. So, I mean, that is uh, a really interesting feature of the proposals from some in the business community has been that idea that let's replace the private right of action and instead um, really leave it up to ASIC to bring these cases. And one can only presume based on who is putting that forward that the view is that ASIC will bring fewer um, actions than uh, the plaintiff firms and litigation funders would. Uh, now, that, that may or may not be true. I think the risk is that um, we're in a very different enforcement environment, particularly um, post-Financial Services Royal Commission. If you then, in that environment, give ASIC a mandate to pursue effectively shareholder class actions um, itself in circumstances where ASIC has just massively increased its, um, its enforcement team, the size of that team, and if ASIC gets a few early successes, you're effectively um, funding that team to then pursue further claims. 
the idea that ASIC will necessarily bring far fewer actions than are currently brought, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a safe assumption. You know, it may prove to be true, but I think um, it's not been the case in the past, for example, that ASIC has only bought cases that are guaranteed of success. ASIC has run cases and lost. Uh, and I don't think you should assume that ASIC would only bring uh, cases that the business community would regard as meritorious cases. Um, you may find that if ASIC were uh, sufficiently resourced and incentivized, it would bring almost as many cases, cases as are currently being brought, is the first point. The second point is, you know, be careful what you wish for, because if ASIC brings the case, it's going to then be seeking redress on behalf of shareholders. And there are a couple of consequences of that. Firstly, query whether ASIC will be quite as pragmatic when it comes to settlement, for example, as a litigation funder or, uh, or a plaintiff firm might be that's operating on a contingency fee basis. Or, or will ASIC more or less take the view that unless they get a very, very substantial settlement, they will take cases to trial. Um, so it, it just it introduces a very different dynamic when you're talking about resolving a dispute. The second point is that only last year, Parliament very substantially increased the penalties for breaches of uh, the Corporations Act, including uh, breaches of the continuous disclosure provision. So for a, for a large listed company, for our very largest listed companies, the penalty for a breach of the continuous disclosure laws is a maximum of $525 million. And that penalty applies on one view for every day that there is a breach. So if you are seven days late in disclosing the relevant information, that's seven times $525 million is the maximum penalty. Now, I'm not saying that you know, you're always going to have penalties of that order of magnitude, but ASIC has, again, basically been told that when there are breaches of the law, it needs to be pursuing penalties. So now you're facing not just a claim on behalf of shareholders for redress for loss, but you're also facing a claim by ASIC for the imposition of a very substantial penalty. It actually increases the stakes for the companies that are the subject of these actions by ASIC. And then the final piece of it is that if ASIC has now mustered itself to bring an action, it's not just going to be looking at the company. It's going to be looking at who were the officers who had the relevant information or who were the directors who had the relevant information that ASIC says ought to have been disclosed. Or if it's a case around um, you know, misleading the market, who were those who were involved in um, approving and authorising the release of that information? So now you're not only talking about redress for shareholders is what ASIC will be after. It'll be after a penalty against the company. And it then couples that with almost inevitably a claim against some of the key directors or executives who were involved in the relevant conductor who held the relevant information. So, um, you know, while in theory saying let's get rid of a private right of action and instead empower ASIC to bring these sorts of claims um, might seem like a good idea. I guess you just need to think through the practical implications of, of that and, and what would the market look like if, um, if ASIC were effectively the sole um, party that had a, an opportunity to, to pursue these kinds of claims. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's really great. Um, uh, some really great reflection, Cameron, because I, I guess um, as you were talking, I was thinking, um, you know, in that scenario, in that world where there is no private right of action in relation to continuous disclosure breaches, um, you know, what if you're left with still the M&D conduct and how does litigation funders might, um, their interaction or relationship with these 
shareholder class actions that have been brought by ASIC would change. So, for example, I can see or I can imagine, let's say ASIC didn't get a, as great a result in terms of compensating um, the shareholders because the litigation funders come in at the back end and try to seek whatever gap that they perceive they missed out on because of the way that the regulator uh, ran that case or, um, you know, put the loss proposition. So, anyway, it's yes, really, right. really fascinating. Yeah, really good point, Christophe, because it's one thing to say, well, let's ban a private right of action for um, breaches of 674, you know, continuous disclosure. Um, but you can see litigation funders and plaintiff firms getting very creative, bringing misleading or deceptive conduct claims, even bringing you know, common law negligence style claims against the company um, as a means of trying to outflank um, you know, the, any, any um, removal of a private right of action for a breach of 674. So as Christine says, you're now facing you know, regulatory action and um, a shareholder class action rather than just facing one of those. So again, an important um, reflection on um, the potential consequences of, of banning a private right of action. Sorry, Harry, was there another thing you, um, you wanted to say? I was just going to add that, that that's indeed how it played out in a recent example in the UK in that the regulator brought an action against Tesco, one of the big UK grocers, for a breach of its disclosure obligations and assessed uh, the loss that investors had suffered on the basis of a particular methodology. And then, um, of course, the uh, funded claim commences once that compensation scheme has run its course, because exactly as Christine says, uh, there is a gap and uh, litigious uh, groups are perfectly willing to run a piece of litigation to try and recover recover that gap. Um, so I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's what we see developing over here as well. Mm -hmm. I'm actually just reminded of uh, the uh, brick analogy that Jason used. So you've got to be very careful if you change one brick of the Corporations Act, how it might flow through to uh, different aspects of our, um, you know, very complex regime that we have. All right. Well, on that very cheery note, um, we, we might sign off and leave you to um, our next uh, in this series. Um, but thank you all for those of you who've uh, made it to the end of this session. And we uh, look forward to um, seeing you again in a couple of weeks time in the next um, fireside session. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>